0: How many of you since coming to college have had some kind of doubt come into your own mind or maybe have heard something in class that was critical of your faith or maybe had a friend that opposed your Christian beliefs? Quite a few of you, all right? Whether or not it's an attack that you're facing or just an issue in your own mind that you want to resolve, maybe a doubt that you've had and you just want to get it straight in your own head, this is going to be a great night for you to really learn a solid defense of your faith that you could use for the rest of your life. At the end of the night, I'm going to give you a tool that we're going to kind of go through here that will help you remember this. There will be four words. These are what we call an acronym, so each letter stands for something. And if you memorize these four words, I promise you, no matter what could come up, you'll have a framework for how to deal with that doubt that you're facing. And these aren't just things that Nate came up with. These are tested and time-proven facts. All right? And so as we begin, I wanted to start with 1 Peter 3.15. It says, in your hearts, and you can turn there if you want. It says, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. And then, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I'll just say from the start, what we share with you isn't something that you should use to beat somebody over the head. That's not what you should do with it. This is to give you good answers when you have doubts, and it's to give others good answers when they have real questions. It's not to start fights with atheists or anything like that. All right? It's just to be able to know the evidence. Now, when we start talking about this, I want you to be familiar with two terms that will come up today. One is apologetics. It doesn't mean you're apologizing for anything. It comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to give a defense. It's actually the very word that we find in this verse, where it says, always be ready to give the reason. That word, to give the reason, in the Greek is to give an apologia. It's to give a defense of your faith, all right? So that's what we're talking about when we talk about apologetics. It's being able to give a defense of your Christian faith. Why is this true, and why is something opposed to this not true? And as I start talking about that, I want to mention that it's okay to say that one thing is right and another thing is wrong. All truth is exclusive. Math is always exclusive. If you say 2 plus 2 is 5, you're wrong, and your professor will grade you wrong. Right? Because truth is always exclusive. Always. Hate is wrong, love is right. 2 plus 2 is 4, not 5. Truth is always exclusive. Now, our society tries to tell us that's not the case. Well, that's wrong. Truth is always exclusive. So it's okay to say, I know what I believe, and I believe that it's true. And that's different than saying, I don't like you because you disagree with me. That would be wrong. See, as a Christian, we're called to say, I know the truth of God's word, and I love and respect people that disagree with me. Even if they have disagreements. Because, see, they're made in God's image, just like I am. And they deserve love and respect, just like I do. Alright? So this isn't about beating people over the head, but giving good answers to others that have real questions, and having answers when you yourself face real doubt. The other word I want you to be familiar with is worldview. Okay? I'll use it a few times tonight. But worldview literally refers to the lens through which you see the world. Does that make sense? So your worldview is how you view everything around you. And we all have a worldview. There's not a person alive that doesn't have a worldview. Some people would say it's wrong to be biased. I would say it's impossible not to be biased. Everybody has a bias, and it's called their worldview. As a Christian, I'll just throw this in there, I think your worldview is much more freeing than... One that is naturalistic, and by naturalistic, I mean atheistic. See, for you, you're okay with a scientific explanation for anything you might encounter in the world. But you're also okay with much more than just science. You know that there's more than just the natural world. Now, naturalism says all we can say is naturalism. So they have a restricted worldview. They're only okay with one type of answer. You're okay with wherever the evidence leads you. All right? So, a worldview is how you see the world, and we'll talk about that, because it's vitally important that you understand the validity of your Christian worldview. And if you aren't a Christian, if you're just investigating, I'm glad you're here, and I'd love to talk more afterwards. This will be a great way to get exposed to some of the evidence. So before we get into the evidence for our faith, I'm briefly, and I mean very briefly, and if I go a little fast here, bear with me, because there's a lot to go through and I don't want to keep you here all night we're going to briefly describe what we call negative apologetics. Now, it's not negative in its quality, but what it describes is why we don't believe something other than what we do believe. Does that make sense? That's why it's called negative apologetics. Now, I never like to focus on why other people are wrong. I'd rather focus on why the Bible is true, okay? But as we set up for defending the truth claims of the Bible, I briefly want to give you... Two words, tall and tails, that will help you remember why other worldviews come up short. All right? So this will be good. So number one, we don't believe worldviews other than Christianity because of their theological incoherence. Now this is a real issue that you'll find when you dig into a lot of different worldviews, theological incoherence. Some worldviews, some... Versions of Christianity that are not truly Christian would say, Jesus is God, and he's Satan's brother. Okay, that's incoherent. They don't line up, right? Some would say you're saved by works, but then you're saved by God's gift. Those are incoherent claims. They don't work out. Reincarnation, guys, is self-contradictory and incoherent. That's a big problem. It is not logically sustainable. If you want to talk about why, we can talk afterwards. But it is an incoherent worldview that a lot of people buy into because they like the idea. And on a side note, I've been to those parts of the world. I've been in Nepal, a little bit in India, more in Nepal, two months in Nepal, and people are petrified by the thought of reincarnation there because it's this endless cycle of suffering and misery. So the people here think, oh, it's so nice, you know, maybe I'll be a bird. That's not... That's not what anybody that buys into reincarnation believes. It's a lot of pain. And I've talked with Nepalese who, in tears, heard about Jesus and said, that is my escape from this cycle of pain and suffering. Jesus is my way out. Okay, so T, theological incoherence. A, ambiguous truth claims. Now, there are a lot of different things that we'll find in different worldviews that are ambiguous, like statements that... They used to claim a right, now they claim a wrong. Like there's one religion that said polygamy was necessary, now they say it's wrong. Okay, that's ambiguous. Which one is it, right? And you'll see many other things like that, conflicting perspectives. Desire causes all evil, this is Buddhism, but the only way to conquer evil is to desire to cut out of it and to conquer it, right? So if desire causes all evil, why do you have to desire to get away from that evil? Does that make sense? So there's an ambiguity here. There's a conflict here. Okay, L, lack of evidence requiring a leap of faith. That's a lot of times what you're accused of as a Christian, but it's what we find in so many other worldviews, a lack of evidence. Why do you believe that? Oh, I just feel like it. I want to believe that. I could care less what I think about a cliff. If I fall off it, I die. (laughs) doesn't matter what I want the cliff to do, or what I hope the cliff will do, or what would be neat if the cliff would do. I will die if I fall off the cliff. There's a truth about the cliff, and my perspective does nothing to change that reality. Does that make sense? Okay, so lack of evidence requiring a leap of faith. Finally, worldviews other than Christianity fundamentally lack the power to change a person's life. Jesus truly does change lives. And that's, I think, one of the greatest evidences for our Christian faith. But we're going to go into a lot more before we get there. That was the Tall acronym. Let me share the Tales acronym with you, and it kind of fits with the narrative. We can reject tall tales and accept best facts, right? But the Tales acronym is why we don't believe evolution, naturalism, atheism. All right. Now, right from the start, the transitional evidence is missing. That's the T in the acronym. The transitional. Me- the transitional evidence for evolution, for example, is missing. All right. Beyond that, even if that were there, there's a big problem. The apparatus is insufficient. And by apparatus, I'm referring to what's called natural selection, the mechanism of evolution, supposedly. Natural selection can always whittle down, but it can never create something new. So that's where you have to get mutations, supposedly, for natural selection to use to create new species. The problem is is those positive mutations that increase the information in a species do not exist. So the entire thing is a house of cards. It falls apart. There's no empirical verification of it. So the apparatus is insufficient. L, life can't arise from non-life. Now this is fundamental because if this is all just an accident... You have to have life coming from non-life. Now, you might hear somebody say, oh, what about the Miller-Urey experiment or something like that where some organic compounds were formed from some supposed primordial soup. The problem with that is organic compounds are very far away from an actual cell. In fact, the statistics to get from all those nucleotides, even if you could form them naturally, to get from there to one strand of DNA or to one... Well, excuse me, not just a strand of DNA, but to enough DNA for the simplest theoretical single-celled organism, prokaryote, the statistics for that are 1 in 10 to the 37,000th power. This is astronomically higher than statistical impossibility, what's been called... The universal probability bound. Okay, so life can't arise from non-life. Next, we have the existence of information and design. We heard about it on the short video, but that doesn't come from any, just from nowhere. So even if we gave them the transitional evidence and the apparatus, natural selection, and even if we said you can have life coming from non-life, still all those processes happen according to natural laws, scientific laws, and information and design in the universe which don't come from nothing. So still, they have to explain where that comes from, and there's no natural way to explain it. Finally, even if you were to give them that, at the end of the day, you can't explain where everything came from. There's nothing that you can get from 0 plus 0 to get a substance. Does that make sense? Nothing does not produce something. Now, even when you talk to the biggest physicists alive about this, They go in circles. Hawking will tell you, well, if you add imaginary numbers into the equations for the Big Bang, you get a curve at the beginning instead of a point. Well, people quickly notice that's an imaginary theory, right? That is typical of what people try to do to get out of the simple fact that we all know that you don't get something from nothing. All right, that's the tall tales acronym, and that's why we can reject things other than our Christian faith. Now, we don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to go into the BEST FACTS acronym. And again, I'm going to give you guys these booklets that will describe this so you can learn it in better detail. But if you want to take notes right now, you can definitely go for it. So B is the beginning of the universe and life. Like I explained, that doesn't just happen from nothing. This has traditionally been called the cosmological argument for God's existence. And it's been a solid argument for literally millennia. Okay? This is stuff that was being talked about even before the time of Christ by philosophers as far as evidence that God exists. All right, So this is an ancient argument for God's existence called the cosmological argument for God's existence. And it has been empirically verified by modern cosmology that the universe came into existence out of nothing a finite time ago. That is impossible by any of the natural laws we know of science. And it requires something greater than itself to have occurred, namely a god. So logic dictates and science corroborates a supernatural beginning to the universe a finite time ago. That also applies to life. We know that life is on this planet, just look around. And we know that that can't come from nothing. It's statistically many times greater than statistical impossibility. But it's here. And we know there's a designer behind it. That leads to the next letter in the acronym, which is E, the engineering of this universe for life. This has traditionally been called the teleological argument for God's existence. And the reality is that everything around you is fine-tuned for you to be here tonight. There are so many different parameters of this universe that if they are off by just the slightest amount, life would not be possible. Yet it is. The universe is fine-tuned for life. This planet is fine-tuned for life, and we happen to be here because of a designer that put us here in this fine-tuned environment. We could go into that a lot more, but because of time, we'll go, because of time, we'll go to S, which is standards and morality. All right? Now, if you believe that murdering someone is wrong and that loving someone is good, then you probably believe in objective moral truth. You believe there are things that are objectively right and objectively wrong. What I mean by that is you don't think things are right because of what you subjectively feel. Does that make sense? If you wake up, Caleb, and think, man, I just feel like beating my roommates this morning, (laughs) you wouldn't say, well, that must be the moral thing to do today because I feel like it. Right. You would recognize that's a terrible thought, right? Oh, yeah. oh, I shouldn't yeah. do that. <laughs> I'm like the nicest person ever. Oh, okay, so this is what we call the moral <laughs> argument for God's existence. Unless you think this is a weak argument, you've heard of C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest theologians in history, who also wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, which turned into all these movies and all this stuff. Well, C.S. Lewis was an atheist, and the moral argument for God's existence led him to faith in Christ. Francis Collins is arguably in the top two or three scientists of the last century. He's the one that led the Human Genome Project here in the United States that first mapped the human genome. He came to faith in Christ because of the moral argument for God's existence. So this isn't a shabby argument. This is a solid argument for God's existence. If you believe there are objective moral truths, then you have to believe that there is an objective moral law giver and enforcer behind those. Otherwise, anything literally goes. If evolution is true, might makes right, survival of the fittest, rob, steal, rape, kill, destroy, you name it, nobody can say it's wrong. Because there's no standard by which it could be judged wrong, and there's nobody to enforce that standard even if it were. Does that make sense? If you believe in objective moral truth, which I think every one of us in this room does, and to prove it, if I were to come up and rob you, you'd say, you can't do that. It's wrong. And if I said, no, no, my truth says it's right, you'd say, I don't care what you say, it's wrong. See, we all know that there is an objective moral truth, and that is compelling evidence that there is an objective moral lawgiver. So all these so far are evidence that God exists. The cosmological argument for God's existence, the teleological argument for God's existence, and the moral argument for God's existence. Those are all philosophical terms that you'll hear from secular and Christian philosophers alike. And they're all compelling evidence for God's existence. I also want to talk about T, the truth about Jesus. Because the Bible claims that Jesus is God in human flesh living here with us. And if that's true, his life and his actions are evidence for God himself. Now what we see in the life of Jesus is that he is historically verified. The biggest critic of the Bible alive today the biggest critic of the Bible alive today, who Bailey knows who I'm talking about, his latest book is, Did Jesus Really Exist? And you know what he says? If you don't think he really existed, you're what he calls a mythicist. Not not a very flattering term. But he says the history for Jesus cannot be ignored. And I'll just tell you right now, there are four times as many historical references to Jesus Christ than there are to Tiberius Caesar, who ruled the known world of Jesus' day. If you were to eliminate all the Christian references to him, which you can't do because those are historical references as well, eyewitness accounts, even if you threw them all out, you'd still have more historical references to Christ than to, to Tiberius Caesar. The historical evidence for Christ is compelling. Now, we move beyond just the historicity of Christ the reality is we see what he lived and what he taught and what he did. What he taught is unparalleled in history. What he did is unparalleled in history. Even these extra-biblical, non-Christian, non-Christian hostile accounts corroborate the biblical picture from a different perspective. For example, they say he was a sorcerer. The Bible says he was a miracle worker. Okay? For example, one would say, cursed is anyone who raises himself from the dead in the name of God. From a hostile source, what does that confirm? that he rose from the dead. Okay? Now, talking about his resurrection from the dead, something that he said would happen, something that was prophesied in Scripture before he even came to this earth, there's historical evidence for his resurrection that cannot be beaten. We've had the opportunity to interview Dr. Gary Habermas on the radio a few times. I'm trying to get him to do a Connect Q&A where you could ask him questions, but he's the world's biggest expert on the resurrection. If you've read The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel or anything like that, he's one of the authors in there that is interviewed about the resurrection. Dr. Habermas has gone up against some of the biggest atheists in the world on the evidence for the resurrection, and you know what? He mops the floor with them every single time. The evidence for the resurrection is compelling and irrefutable. And that tells us that a man did live on this earth that had power over nature, that taught things nobody had ever taught before, that said he would rise from the dead according to prophecy, and then rose from the dead. There were over 500 eyewitnesses, and the earth has never been the same since. Time is literally measured by his life. And I think that's compelling exi- evidence that he was who he claimed to be, God in human flesh. Going on from there, though, there are great reasons to believe that the Bible is true. <laughs> and as we talk about why to believe in the Bible... I would start with Jesus. First of all, he corroborated the Old Testament. The Gospels and the New Testament are all his direct words. And then the New Testament after him is from the eyewitnesses and the people that interviewed the eyewitnesses that spent time with him. So right from the start, if you say, why should I believe the Bible? There are good reasons to, and we'll get to those. But before any of them, it comes straight from Jesus. And we can trust him knowing what he did here on this earth. And right? his power over everything on this earth all right so why believe the bible well one it foretells the future this is incredible do you know that there are somewhere around a thousand prophecies in scripture some would say more than that and you know almost all of them have been fulfilled and i'm not just saying like shaky i don't know if you could get that jesus alone fulfilled over a hundred prophecies prophecies he couldn't fake like where he would be born how he would die just a note The method of his death was prophesied before that method even existed on the planet, right? Jesus fulfilled over a hundred prophecies personally. Beyond that, there are other incredible prophecies. We don't have time to deal with all of them, obviously. I'll just share a few. Alexander the Great is prophesied in such incredible detail in the book of Daniel that critics have called it post-written history, saying it couldn't possibly be true because it's so accurate. And not just Alexander the Great. Daniel in chapters 7, 8, and 9 prophesies 500 years of Israel's history. Every single nation that would conquer them, which ones would replace which ones, different people that would be involved in different times, what those different people would do, it's unbelievable if you just read those three chapters in Daniel. But Alexander the Great is one of those that's prophesied there in incredible detail that he would live, that he would conquer the known world, that he'd be the first king of Greece, that he would die at a very young age, and that he wouldn't die from military action. He didn't die in battle. After that, it says that his his kingdom would split four ways and recombine into two. It's exactly what happened, the Ptolemaics and the Seleucids. I mean, you can go on and on, but what we see prophesied about Daniel is unfathomable. We see the same thing in Isaiah about Cyrus, who prophesied 150-ish years before Cyrus that Cyrus would be born, even... The name is given. And beyond that, he says what Cyrus will do. This is incredible. You can read about Cyrus in Isaiah 44 and 45. Read that section about Cyrus if you'd like. All right, so the Bible foretells the future. And the critic to get out of this says it's post-written history. right? So it's just written afterwards. So I always go back to Jesus. We have all those prophecies before Christ's time in the documents. So even if you were to write off Cyrus or somebody like that... If, You can't grant that to the critic, but even if you were nice to them and wrote it off, they still have to deal with Jesus fulfilling over 100 prophecies, and they can't. And that is God's fingerprints on his word. Okay, next, the Bible is archaeologically accurate. It's been said that there's never been an archaeological find that disproved the Bible. That's an incredible statement. Stephanie, back there, this very summer got to do an archaeological dig on the biblical city of Ai. We read about it in the Bible, and Stephanie brought home, she was allowed to do this, a little piece of pottery from the dig. It was pretty incredible. It's at our house. If you come Thursday, you can look at it. Some Canaanite proper, proper, can't even talk. <laughs> Some pottery from the Canaanites from about 3,400 years ago. All right, the Bible is archaeologically accurate, and we could go into a lot of that, but I've got to go on. The Bible C is contradiction-free. This is C in the facts acronym. Now, lots of people try to say, oh, what about this contradiction, that one, that one? And I'll tell you, everyone I've ever heard is a very lame example of a contradiction. They'll bring up one, well, the Bible says pi is 3.1, or 3.0, and they'll say it's actually 3.14. Well, of course, the Bible never says pi equals 3.0. They're referring to an obscure passage that talks about an object that artists made that was sphere or circular. It was a bowl, a basin. And it gives the dimensions of the basin and if you do the math backwards, it comes out at 3.0. So what does that tell you? That the Bible got pi wrong? No, it tells you that the artists were pretty good at hammering that metal to get it <laughs> that close to a perfect circle. Right? This is what people have to stoop to to come up with what they call contradiction in the Bible. And there are others too that we could talk about, but Because of time, we have to go on. And seriously, guys, I love talking about this. If you ever want to talk, come talk to me about this. If you've had a doubt, a question, ask it. I'd love to talk about it. Okay, T, the Bible has been translated correctly. All the time we hear, you can't trust the Bible because it's been translated over and over and over and over. in the telephone game, you know what happens with kids. You don't know what really got said, right? That's what we all hear. The problem with that is we can go back and look at 24,000 copies of the originals. We don't have the originals, but we have 24,000 copies of them, about 6,000 in the Greek and the rest in translations from the Greek. But from those, you can reconstitute what the originals said. So the critic might say, oh, but you don't have the originals. That's a problem. No, that's actually a good thing. If you had the originals, what would you have to do to change our Christian faith? Go back to one document, insert one word, boom, it's all changed. But when we have 6,000 copies of the original, what would you have to do to change it? Change 6,000 copies that are spread out all over the world and all different places? Impossible. So even the fact that we have so many copies and not the originals itself is a safeguard against that truth being changed. Isn't this incredible when you think about it? The fact that we can really trust what's written there. And from that, we can get to the point where 98.5% of the text has no questions whatsoever. The 1.5% that do have questions, that doesn't mean that they could be wrong or we don't know what they are. We know what they are. It's just that because of the body of evidence, some later passages crop up later that we know are not really there. Does that make sense? I'll give you one example. John chapter 8 talks about Jesus finding the woman caught in adultery. You've all heard that story. Let him who has no sin cast the first stone. The problem with that passage is it's not in any of the original documents. So that would be one of those 1.5%. Now it's in there because somewhere along church history, people started including it. But when we go back to the early documents, we see it's not there. So that's not a problem for us. In your modern translations, it'll probably have lines separating that passage saying this isn't in any of the early documents. Does that make sense? See, we have such a wealth of those early manuscripts that we can be confident that the Bible that we have is exactly what was originally written, and we can trust what it says. And on that note, none of those 1.5% affect doctrine at all. That passage about Jesus is a great story, right? If you read that to me and said, I really love this story, I'd say I love it too, right? There's a question mark about when it came up, But it's a great story. So none of those question passages affect any doctrine, and we can know from the wealth of evidence where they belong. All right, the final S in the FACTS acronym, which is the final acronym that we'll share, is S, scientific statements. So many people say, you can't trust the Bible because it's unscientific. My undergraduate degree is in chemistry. I love science. Okay? Okay. The reality is that the Bible is not scientifically incompatible. It's not scientifically wrong. In fact, we see many scientific statements in the Bible. And just a side note, science tells you about what? About the natural world, right? What does the Bible tell us about? This supernatural world, right? God's interactions in the natural world, but supernatural spiritual truths right? You could never say that science could disprove the Bible or Christianity or any faith for that matter because it's not even talking about that. The most science can do is talk about natural things happening in the natural world around you today, right? That's it. And as someone who has a degree in science, I love it, but I realize it's limited in what it can tell you about the truth. Okay, the Bible talks about radioactive decay, and I want to preface that by saying. The Bible isn't a science textbook, but it has fingerprints of God on it. And I think some of these scientific statements are those exact things. You could check that out in 2 Peter 3.10. You'll get a lot of this tonight, so you can look at it more. The Bible talks about hydrologic cycles, atmospheric jet streams, clouds and condensation, the earth's spherical shape. It doesn't say the earth is flat. It uses metaphors about the corners of the earth. So a critic might say, that means it's flat. It's talking about northeast, southwest. The Bible says that the earth is spherical, okay, in Isaiah 40:22, It talks about the expansion of the universe many, many times. That's something that wasn't even discovered until Hubble, okay, and Einstein, that period of time. And it's something that proves that the universe had a beginning, because if it's expanding, it had a beginning. This is what Einstein reacted viscerally to and came up with the cosmological constant to try and get out of the reality that the science said there's a God. He later called it the biggest mistake of his life. Interestingly, philosophers today are trying to resurrect the cosmological, <laughs> the cosmological constant. Don't confuse it with the cosmological argument for God's existence. All right. The Earth's foundation hung on nothing. The air has weight. Hydrothermic vents, entropy, which is the second law of thermodynamics, described multiple times in the Bible. Earth's molten outer core, the beginning of the universe, And it's beginning with light, both right in Genesis 1. If you read the first three minutes, I think it's called, by Steven Weinberg, a huge atheist, Nobel Prize winning physicist, he'll say it's about the first three minutes of the universe, he'll say it all started with light. First several hundred thousand years, in his opinion, were just light, right? Interesting, the Bible says it all started with light too, right? Okay, you look at this. We also see the fact that the Bible says that one event could be seen across the entire universe when it occurs. Jesus' return twice said that we would all see it live. That is prophetic of the fact that we have TVs today, but it's also a scientific statement about the reality that such a thing could be possible. Okay, now all that is just what I would call a fingerprint here or there. The Bible is not a science textbook. You should take lots of science. It's good for you. But at the same time, you should realize it doesn't contradict the Bible or faith and there are scientific statements in the Bible that corroborate that it's from God. So I would encourage you to get familiar with all these arguments, and I went through the (laughs) ultra-fast route through them, so we can talk more if you ever want to. I'm going to give you, in just a minute, a little booklet that has all of them. But before I do that, I want to talk about the very best fact of all. All this, again, is not to beat somebody over the head, or to prove that you have some answers, or to say I'm the best, or to say that you're the worst, or anything like that. All of this is to say the Bible offers a hope that nobody else offers. See, it's been said that there are only two religions in the world. Have you heard this? There's the one that says you have to do it on your own, and there's the one that says you can't and you need Jesus to do it for you. If you look at Buddhism, you just have to suffer through more on your own. If you look at, you name the religion, guys. Any other religious system, you better do more religious good deeds. You better do more good things. You better pray more. You better rub more beads. You better think less bad thoughts. You better give out more of your stuff. That time I spent in Nepal, I was so sad because the people were the poorest I'd ever seen. And I have lived a large percentage of my life overseas. I've lived in eight countries. Okay? And in Nepal, I was just devastated by the poverty. Yet they were giving gourmet meals to idols on the streets in Kathmandu that they could never afford to eat themselves. Trying to earn a salvation that they knew no better way to earn. And the Bible says the direct opposite. The Bible says that God loves you intimately. That he thinks about you constantly. That his thoughts for you outnumber the sands of the sea. That there's nothing you could do to get him to stop loving you. That he created you for relationship with himself and that he has a plan for your life. A good plan. Doesn't mean you're going to drive Ferraris, but it means that it, you'll live a life of meaning and purpose. Not just contributing to global warming, not just wasting it away, but living for a purpose. Unfortunately, the Bible also says that every one of us in this room is sinful. And sin means that we don't match up to who God is. We're selfish, He's not, He's loving. Right? I'm imperfect, He's perfect. And you can't put perfect and imperfect together and the perfect still be perfect. So if God wants a relationship with you and you're imperfect, what has to happen? That imperfection has to go somehow. So that's a big problem. So God loves you, but each one of us are sinful and separated from him? But that leads to the greatest news ever. See, somebody that I shared that with once said, if that's true, why are you Christians always so happy? The greatest news is that God came to our level in a human body, Jesus Christ. And he lived a perfect life that I never could, and that nobody ever has. And then he went to the cross and died a sinner's death for all of our sins. See, David couldn't die for me because he has his own sin issue to deal with. right? And Cody, same issue. I couldn't die for you even if I wanted to because I have my own sins to deal with. But it took a perfect person to say, I will pay the price that only I can pay for you. So that you, when you die and you stand before God, you can go into heaven for all of eternity because you trusted me. Not because you earned it on your own. That's incredible news. That's the greatest news ever. I don't have to earn it on my own. And it doesn't stop there. It gets better every day like Aaron said. Jesus walks with me through this life. And I've talked to so many students that say, I believe it's all true, but I can't give up control. And I think, I understand the struggle. I struggle with it every day. But what I find out is he is right every single time. My control gets me into bad situations every single time. And his way always leads to peace. And it always leads to meaning. And it always leads to significance. And so he says, I stand at the door and knock. He says, if you open the door, I'll come in. So if you went home tonight and you're sitting in your dorm room and knock, 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 you look through the door, it's Jesus himself standing outside your room. (laughs) You probably think it was a little weird, maybe. But let's say you were convinced it really was Jesus. And he said, hey, can I come in? Can we share a meal as friends? Would you open the door? If he said, listen, I want to give you an eternity in heaven forever, And look, I'm the only one in the history of this world that beat death, so I'm the only one in the history of this world that can promise you that? Would you say, you know, could you please leave the dorm room? (laughs) Or would you say, I want to live the rest of my life with you. I don't want to spend a day apart from you, Jesus. And I want you to run my life, because I see you can do better than I can. That's the choice that each one of us are faced with. And as I talk, I want to just tell you, This isn't something you have to do every day, right? Jesus says when you open the door and let him come in and take control of your heart, he says he'll never leave you nor forsake you. He says that no one can snatch you out of his hand. He says that nothing can separate you from his love. So once you've truly put your faith and trust in him, once you've truly asked him to be your savior and Lord, that involves asking him to forgive you and asking him to take over your life. Once you've really done that, it's solid. You're secure in that relationship. So if you've you've already done that and you're sure of it, then I wouldn't ask you to do that again. I'd ask you to keep walking closer to Jesus. But if you know there's never been a time in my life where I know for sure, for sure, for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus came into my life and that I gave him control, I want to ask you to do that tonight. And I'm going to pray, and if you want to do that, I'd ask you to pray with me. Later I'll have you check on those note cards if you took this step so that one of us can get with you and pray with you and encourage you in your new walk with Christ. right? But anyway, if you're there saying, I realize I need Jesus, and I want to put my faith and my trust in him for my salvation, let's just pray real quick. And all of us can bow our heads and pray right now. Dear Jesus, I thank you so much that the evidence for you is compelling. I thank you so much that you say that you're the way, the truth, and the life, and that I can follow you and have an eternity in heaven and a life of meaning and purpose on this planet. And I realize I need you. So tonight I ask you to come into my life, to take control of my life, to forgive my sins, and to be my Savior and Lord. I know that there's no other way. Thank you for adopting me into your family. Thank you that I'm your child and that you will never leave me nor forsake me. Amen.